Lord, thank you for this time to be together. We are blessed to be here on the Lord's Day to open your word and to learn of you. I pray that you would work in our hearts today. Uh, instruct us, teach us, and give us a clear vision of you and your truth so that we might uh, live as you intend us to live, so that we might uh, worship you as you deserve. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so I have a question for you this morning. Which New Testament author wrote more in terms of content than any other author? If you were to do a word count on the New Testament, which author do you think wrote the most? You shout it out. Luke. Why would you say Luke? Because you know that Luke is what the lesson's on today, right? Yeah, a lot of us would say Luke. You, yeah, he did. Luke and Acts. A lot of us would probably think Paul. Raise your hand if you thought Paul but didn't want to shout it out in case it was a trick question like it was. Yeah, a lot of us would assume that Paul, not Luke, wrote most of the New Testament. But Luke and Acts together, if you were to do a word count on them, are actually longer than all of Paul's letters put together. So Luke is the most prolific author of the New Testament. And today, we're going to be looking at the Gospel of Luke, an overview of the Gospel of Luke. So a little bit about the author. How do we know that Luke wrote this Gospel? Because never in the Gospel of Luke does he refer to himself by name. Well, the same author wrote both Luke and Acts, and that's very clear from the introductions to both books. And as we read the book of Acts, we see that uh, the author of Acts uses we or us language very often when he's referring to um, these groups of people that were traveling with Paul on his missionary journeys. So sometimes, sometimes it says they you know, left this town and went to this city and this happened to them, and he says this happened to them, you know, those are you know, certain pronouns. And then other times he said, we left, we arrived, we departed, and this happened to us. So sometimes the author uses us, we language, other times they, them language. And if you sort of put all those passages, passages together, and if you go through the process of elimination, you'll come up with Luke as being the key to those passages. So Luke is clearly the author of Acts, and when we bundle them together, we take Luke as the author of the Gospel of Luke also. It's why it bears his name, and it's always been, um, according to church history, the assumed author of the Gospel of Luke. So who was Luke? Well, Luke was not one of the disciples. <clears throat> so he was not an apostle in the sense that he had not been personally called and commissioned by Christ the way that Matthew was, the way that John was, other Gospel authors. Luke, according to Colossians 4, which we'll see next time we get back into Colossians, was a doctor who had joined in with Paul and Silas and Timothy on Paul's second missionary journey. When we read the book of Acts, we see that Luke joined them when they were passing through Troas. And Luke would then end up staying at a little city called Philippi and then would rejoin Paul when Paul passed through Philippi once again when he was on his third missionary journey. And Luke would end up staying with Paul all the way to the end of his ministry. He was with Paul during his imprisonment, which is why we see Luke mentioned in Colossians 4 as Paul's writing from prison. So that's Luke. He was a close companion of the Apostle Paul. And he is the only biblical author, likely, who was a Gentile. And that'll be important as we see later. Um, how do we know that Luke was a Gentile? Well, in Acts 1.19, as he's describing what happened, he refers to the language of the Jews and he says it's their language. And when Paul lists all of his traveling companions who were Jewish in Colossians 4, he refers to those of the circumcision, he leaves out Luke. So those two things taken together becomes clear that Luke was in fact a Gentile. And he's, an, and he's the 
most prolific author of the New Testament, which is interesting. And Luke's writing style shows us that he was a very well-educated man. Being a doctor, he would have had a lot of formal training. And even if you analyze the the language that Luke writes with, his writing style shows that he is well-educated. Many people have marveled at the quality of the Greek that is in Luke and Acts. And and people have commented on, on Luke as being one of the most beautiful novels in the Greek language, just in its literary quality. So that's a little bit about Luke. So let's talk about the book itself and its composition. Uh, Luke wrote this account for an individual named Theophilus. Turn to Luke chapter 1. You see this in Luke 1, 1 through 4. I'm just going to read it for you. Written for this individual named Theophilus. So Luke 1, verse 1. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, It seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty considering the things you have been taught. So this gospel, unlike the others, was written not to a church, not even to a group of people, but it was written to an individual, a man named Theophilus. His name means lover of God. So he's apparently a Greek believer. Theophilus is a Greek name. And he needed to be grounded in his faith. He says, so that you may have certainty considering the things that you have been taught. So this book is written to edify believers, to assure them, give them certainty of the things they've heard. He says, listen, there's a lot of stories going going around about Jesus. There's lots of different accounts. And there's different bits and pieces here and there. And I've undertaken... This job, Theophilus, of sitting down and compiling all these things together and putting it together for you in an orderly account so that you can have something tangible to put your hands on. So that the things you've heard told you and the little snippets and bits and pieces you've heard, you can have an authoritative, orderly, organized account to give you certainty, to help ground you in your faith. This tells us that Luke was not an eyewitness of everything in his gospel, although he was an eyewitness for many of the events recorded in Acts. But Luke here represents himself as a researcher, someone who had access, obviously, to eyewitnesses, and he had apostolic authority. Luke would have had opportunity to talk to people like Peter and John and others who were there, who saw it happen. And because this was likely the last gospel written, he could have used, in terms of the synoptics, he could have used Matthew and Mark even as sources. So if he was, you know, taking footnotes He could have cited, perhaps, those other two Gospels, which it's possible Theophilus did not have access to. And he could have cited many other resources. So Luke is is a researcher. He has access to good sources, both eyewitnesses and written accounts. But he also has apostolic credibility, even though he's not an apostle, because he's really tight with the Apostle Paul. He travels with Paul. He's partners with Paul. And so as he's doing this project, it could have even happened while Paul was in prison. So Paul is sitting there writing his letters, and Luke is perhaps also there compiling this gospel. And he's able to even show Paul his work, and Paul can nod and go, that's great. Get that over there to Theophilus. He's going to love it. So Luke writes with apostolic authority, but as a researcher, not primarily as an eyewitness. And we can see the nature of his research in the exact geographical, political, historical detail that he shares. Flip over to chapter 2. This is one of those verses that we read at Christmas that maybe you skip through because you want to get to, you know, the the drama part. But in chapter 2, verse 1, it says, In those days, 
a decree went out from Caesar Augustus, that's a specific Caesar, that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration, because there was a couple of them, when Quirinius was governor of Syria. So he's pinpointing down exactly when this event happened, giving all this political, historical detail. Flip over to chapter 3, we see more of the same. In chapter 3, verse 1, at the beginning of John's ministry, he says, In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate, being governor of Judea, and Herod, being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Iturea and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, being tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John. So he's giving us a lot of very precise, specific detail. He is a researcher who has been thorough. He's not just slapping things together like a ninth grader, you know, at 11.58 and it's due by midnight. I mean, he is, he's definitely put a lot of work into this. And Luke also shows great interest, even more so than the other gospel authors, in the birth stories of John the Baptist and Jesus. Some have speculated that perhaps because Luke is a physician, he took special interest in the virgin birth of Christ. He took interest in the human development of Jesus, pointing out um, that Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man, pointing out how when Jesus was 12 years old, this event happened where he sort of got left on accident um, in the temple back in Jerusalem. He takes interest in the human development of Jesus. And so as we think about the book of Luke being a research project, that should teach us something. That this book shows us that even though every word of scripture is inspired by God and breathed out, and we believe that, that the scriptures have a divine author, there is very much a human element to the authorship of scripture. And though there are times when God literally whispers in the ear of the prophet and says, write this down, thus says the Lord, there are other times where God sovereignly superintends normal human means and guides these human processes, such as doing research and organizing data, and and God has used Luke's research there in in the writing and the composition of Scripture. So all Scripture is divinely inspired, but there is a human element to the authorship of Scripture as well, And, and that should not in any way lessen our view of Scripture, but rather heighten it to appreciate the various means God has used to put together his word for us. So again, this was likely written after both Mark and Matthew, Luke probably used them as sources, uh, along with other oral traditions, little mini-gospels, perhaps, that were going around, eyewitness interviews, and it was probably written before the deaths of Peter and Paul, because he doesn't include those uh, in in the book of Acts, although he includes a lot of other things. Acts ends with Paul in prison, Um, so it's likely that it would have happened before those events, gives us an early date in the 50s, maybe early 60s at the latest. Another interesting thing about Luke's gospel is that Luke has the most distinctive material of all the gospels. Over 50% of what you find in Luke is found only in Luke. So though he may have used Matthew and Mark as source material, he definitely contributes much unique material to the New Testament. Um, In comparison, Matthew is about 40% unique and Mark is only 10% unique. So 90% of what you find in Mark can also be found in the other Gospels. But over 50% of what you find in Luke is only found in Luke. So he's included a lot of material for us. What are some unique contributions? We'll just kind of go through these. I believe I have some of these listed up there. Unique contributions, unique emphases of the Gospel of Luke. Um, One of my favorite things about the Gospel of Luke is in the early chapters, we see these five songs, these five poems of praise. 
Uh, we see it with Elizabeth and Mary and Zechariah and the angels and Simeon. As the birth of Jesus is announced, as the birth of Jesus happens, people and angels alike burst out into song, into these poems. And each has profound Old Testament connections. Part of the certainty that Luke wants to give Theophilus is that what happened with Jesus was indeed the fulfillment of the Old Testament expectations and promises and prophecies. And I find it especially interesting that after 400 years of silence, right, between the Old Testament and the New Testament, God has not been speaking or acting. He's been silent. You know what breaks the silence? It is it, the first human utterance breaking the silence is Mary under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, breaking out in song in this Magnificat, which is amazing. In fact, Luke elevates the role of women um, much more than some of the other gospel authors. Not that they had a low view of women. Um, I believe they had a high view of women that was consistent with Christ's. But Luke brings that out to show us and give a special emphasis on it. 43 times in Luke's gospel, he refers to women. He refers to them by name. He highlights their unique role in the ministry uh, there in, in, the, in the early days, and in, in Acts as well. Uh, 43 times in, in the Gospel of Luke, he refers to women, while if you combine Mark and Matthew together, there's only 49 references to women and their unique roles and words and actions. So Luke elevates the role of women in his Gospel, which, as we'll see later, is part of really his theme. He also emphasizes the prayer life of Jesus. And this is part of Luke's uh, underscoring of the human nature of Christ. He is divine. He is the Son of God, but Jesus is also the Son of Man, and he is perfect in his humanity and even perfect in his dependence on his heavenly Father, perfect in his obedience, perfect in his faith. So Luke highlights the humanity of Christ and so underscores his prayer life, that Jesus is always getting away to go and pray. Um, going hand in hand with that, Luke uniquely emphasizes the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. All throughout the Gospel of Luke, we see repeated emphasis and reference to the Holy Spirit, more so than the other Gospel authors. Luke highlights the Holy Spirit as being active in the conception of Jesus, in the empowering of Jesus for ministry at his baptism, in leading Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted, anointing Jesus for his ministry. The Holy Spirit is promised to the disciples. And this emphasis on the Holy Spirit that Luke has will grow into a crescendo as you get to part two of his gospel, which is the book of Acts. There we see the Holy Spirit coming in power and filling and, and the baptism of the Holy Spirit with the early Christians there at Pentecost. So the Holy Spirit features prominently in the gospel of Luke. <clears throat> Luke also contains for us a large collection of parables. He has 22 different parables that he lists for us, and 17 of them are unique to Luke. So it's obvious that Luke very much appreciated and valued these parables and saw them as being important for Theophilus to be grounded in his faith. So he includes many parables that the other Gospels do not, 17, that are unique here. So let's go ahead and talk about the structure, for Luke, uh, structure of Luke just for a moment here. You can flip to that next, next slide. The prologue we already read, that's, ch that's chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. That's a very uh, Gentile, Greek sort of introduction to this Gospel. And then we get into really the content of the book. Chapters 1 through 3 shows us the entrance of the Son of Man into the world. It's the most extensive of all the birth narratives in the Gospels. Luke gives us more detail, more backstory, more play-by-play -play than Matthew does, and definitely more than Mark does, because Mark doesn't even talk about it. Then in chapters 4 through 9, he tells us about the early ministry of Jesus in Galilee. 
So the early miracles he did, his early teachings, the gathering of the disciples, the calling of the disciples, that's chapters 4 through 9. And then when we get to the end of chapter 9, go ahead and turn to Luke 9, we come to the hinge of the book. If you were to cut Luke in half, here's where you would slice it. Luke chapter 9, go all the way to the end of the chapter. In verse 51, 51 through 62 is sort of the last chunk there. In Luke 9, 51, it says, When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. He set his face to go to Jerusalem. That is a key phrase in the gospel of Luke because chapters 10 through 19 will recount for us the journey to Jerusalem. Now, this journey takes nine, ten chapters here in, in the gospel of Luke. For comparison... In Mark's gospel, it only takes one chapter for this journey to get to Jerusalem. And in Matthew, it takes two chapters. But in Luke, this comprises half of the book. Half of Luke's gospel recounts Jesus turning and setting his face to go to Jerusalem. Why was Jesus going to Jerusalem? He's going to die. And he knew this. And so all of Jesus' actions, all of his teachings from from 951 all the way through his arrival, they all need to be understood in light of the fact that Jesus is intentionally going to Jerusalem and intentionally going there to die, intentionally going there to do something that would change the world. So we need to read Mark's, or Luke's gospel rather against that backdrop that he's on his way to Jerusalem. Then in chapter 19, we see the ministry in Jerusalem. He gets there in 19 through 21. We see Jesus preaching and performing miracles and confronting religious leaders. And he's presenting himself to Israel there at the very heart of Israel as her Messiah, presenting perhaps even the kingdom to Israel. But we know that Jesus is rejected. In chapters 22 through 23, we see his arrest, his death, his burial. Then in chapter 24, the resurrection and the ascension. So that's sort of the structure of Luke. So if you're reading Luke, you get through the birth narratives, then you have his early ministry, then the journey to Jerusalem is really the bulk of Luke's gospel. And then we get to Jerusalem and we find very briefly his ministry there, his rejection, his crucifixion, and then his resurrection and ascension. So I want to talk in our remaining time, because this will take the bulk of our time, about the theology of Luke. What is Luke's emphasis in terms of the things that he's teaching? Uh, Luke has much in common with the other Gospels in that he shows Jesus to be truly divine, to be the Son of God. He recounts for us major events in the life of Christ and especially highlights the passion of Christ, what happened in Jerusalem with his death, burial, and resurrection. But what is his unique, his unique theological contribution among the other Gospels? Well, I think Luke's theology really centers around the person of Christ and the kingdom of God. And you really can't separate those things. The person of Christ and the kingdom of God. Turn to Luke chapter 4. <clears throat> At the beginning of Jesus' earthly ministry in Galilee, after he's been baptized, after he's passed the test in the wilderness, being tempted by Satan, we see Jesus shows up and announces himself on the scene. In chapter 4, verse 14, See that he's returned to Galilee. Let's actually skip down to verse 17. He's come to Nazareth. He's in the, <clears throat> in the synagogue on the Sabbath day. And it says in verse 17 that the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. 
There's no accident there. And what does Jesus do? He unrolls the scroll and found the place where something was written. And I think you can even understand here that Jesus is looking for this text. It's not just that this was the next thing that was supposed to be read. Jesus was hunting for this. And there were no chapter and verse, so verse references. So Jesus likely knew that, okay, this is towards the end. It's you know, towards the 60, 61st chapter, somewhere around there. And he's looking, scanning, and then he finds what he's looking for. And here's what Jesus chooses to read. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. He sits down to teach. And the eyes of all the synagogue were fixed on him. What is Jesus going to say about this messianic text, about the establishment of the kingdom when the Messiah comes? And here's what Jesus begins to say to them in verse 21. Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. The person of Christ, that he is the Messiah, he is the one who's been anointed and commissioned and comes to do what? To bring about the kingdom of God. All these different things that are mentioned in this text that he reads from Isaiah have to do with the establishment of the kingdom. So Jesus is the Messiah. He is the Son of Man. He is the anointed servant of Isaiah, empowered with the Holy Spirit, who's come to do all these things. So what is this about his kingdom that we need to understand? What is it that Jesus came to do? This is what Luke's gospel will tell us much about. One thing that the gospel of Luke tells us about this kingdom is that this kingdom is an expanded kingdom. While those who were in the synagogue that day were fully expecting for a Messiah to come, fully expecting for this kingdom to be established for Israel, in the Gospel of Luke, we see that this kingdom is expanded to include much more than maybe what they were expecting. It's for all people. Throughout the Gospel of Luke, he highlights that this, that this kingdom is even for the outcasts. It's even for the unlikely. It's for sinners. It's for those who are sick and diseased. It's for women, even though they were considered second-class citizens in that day. It's for children. And there's a special emphasis throughout Luke on the poor. Luke's point is that even the people on the fringes, and maybe perhaps especially the people on the fringes, are the one that Jesus has come to save, those who will enter into and receive his kingdom. We see this even in the birth narratives. If you go back to the, the Christmas story in Luke, you know, Matthew tells us about the Magi, right? These, these experts in, in um, the Old Testament who had studied, even though they weren't Jewish, they knew about Daniel's prophecy. They knew about you know, the tradition of what Balaam had said about this star. And so the Magi show up when Messiah is born. But Luke tells us that a special proclamation of the birth of Christ is given not to the priests, not to the scribes, not to the Pharisees. In Luke chapter 2, who gets announced that the Messiah has been born? Do you remember? Who are they? The shepherds. Shepherds were on the low rung of society. They smelled. They lived with animals. They were outside of town. They, they were not the first people you would have thought would have, been, would have received an announcement like this. 
And Luke is filled with things like this that tell us that those who are the least likely are the ones who often get to enter into the kingdom and receive this good news. We see it with the story of the prodigal son. The prodigal son is the one who goes off and acts like an idiot and wastes everything that his father had given him. But when he returns with a humble heart, a contrite heart, his father receives him with joy. But there's another brother, and the parable is really about this other brother, the older brother. The older brother who's always done the right thing, who always works hard, who didn't waste all of his inheritance. And the older brother is frustrated and embittered that his father would have a party for the younger son. And Jesus tells this story to rebuke the religious elite because they were criticizing Jesus for eating with sinners, with tax collectors, with prostitutes. And Jesus tells them this story. And it's a rebuke to them to say, you think that the kingdom of God, that salvation is only for those who have their act together, but it's really for those who have a humble heart and a broken heart. And that is often found among people like this, people who have a history, people who have a backstory, people who have shame, people that society would would be quick to cast out and ignore. Those are the ones that Christ has come for. Again, back in Luke chapter 4, Jesus comes to proclaim good news to the poor, liberty to the captives, recovering of sight to the blind, liberty for those who are oppressed. These are the people Jesus comes to. I love the story of another parable Jesus tells about two people who come into the temple. There's a tax collector and there is a Pharisee, one who is considered a traitor and an outcast and a sellout. And one who's considered to be one of the most respectable and reputable people in the land. These two men come into the temple to pray. And the Pharisee stands and says, God, thank you that I'm not like this sinner over here. And look at all the things I do that are so righteous. And the tax collector, on the other hand, stands in the back. He's not up front. And he beats his chest, a sign of grief and mourning. And he just says, very simply, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus says to those listening that it's this man the tax collector who went home justified, forgiven, declared righteous, rather than the other. This is the message of the gospel of Luke, that the kingdom of God will include sinners and women and children and the poor and the lame and those who are diseased, all who trust in Jesus, regardless of their state in society. It's not just for the well-to-do people, not just for the ones that seem most likely to enter into the kingdom. And this includes not only sinners, but also Gentiles. And think about how important this would have been for Luke. Luke is a Gentile. Think about how important this would have been for Theophilus to understand, to have certainty that, yes, it's not too good to be true. This is for me, even though I'm Greek and I'm not Jewish. This kingdom has no ethnic boundaries. And we see this even in the genealogy that Luke gives us of Jesus. You can flip back to the early chapters of Luke and see this. You don't have to turn... um, But the genealogy of Luke tells us that not only is Jesus the son of David and the son of Abraham as as being Jewish, but Jesus is also the son of Adam. Luke traces the genealogy all the way back to Adam. Why does he do that? Well, he wants to show Theophilus and others who read that Jesus is not just a Jewish Messiah. He's a Messiah for mankind. For the human race, for all who come from Adam, Jesus comes to represent us and to be our federal head. That's an amazing truth. And we see it in some of the announcements. Look in chapter 2, verse 32, I believe it is. 
When Jesus is presented in the temple, there's an old man named Simeon. And when he sees the baby Jesus, he says this in verse 29, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation. He's seen the person of Christ. Your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people, Israel. He's quoting here from Isaiah 42 and 49 and 52 and 60, this idea that Jesus is a light for revelation to the Gentiles. The salvation that Jesus brings, the kingdom he establishes, is not only for the Jews. We see this in chapter 13 as well. Chapter 13, Jesus underscores this this concept for us. Jesus teaches about the narrowness of the door, that those who are saved are few, and the ones who go down the path to destruction will be many. But look at what he says about this feast in verse 29. People will come from east and west and from north and south and recline at table in the kingdom of God. And behold, some are last who will be first, and some are first who will be last. Unfortunately, many of the Jews in Jesus' day would reject him. But there were many who would come and believe who were from other places, all the different directions, and they will come to this table and eat in the kingdom of God. And those who are thought to be last by many of the Jews in Jesus' day would in fact be first. And those who everyone assumed would be first in the kingdom are actually last. It's upside down and it's backwards. If Mark shows us what kind of Messiah Jesus was, emphasizing that he was a suffering servant, Luke shows us what kind of kingdom he brings. One that seems to Israel as upside down and backwards. One that is unexpected in its nature. But this is what Jesus comes to do. It's an expanded kingdom. But secondly, the kingdom is why Jesus came. You really can't understand the person of Christ apart from the work of Christ. In Luke 19.10, it says, The Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. This is why the Son of Man, this perfect man, the Son of Adam, this is why he came to seek and save the lost. And with this salvation comes the establishment of his kingdom. In Luke chapter 5, verse 30, the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. This is why Jesus came, to save sinners, to seek the lost, and to establish his kingdom and build it with these kinds of people. This is illustrated for us in the great joy that Jesus talks about when he tells the the three parables about finding the lost coin, finding the lost sheep, and receiving the prodigal son. There's great joy and rejoicing because this is what Jesus came to do. This shows us something about his heart. This is what Jesus came to do. Third, the kingdom will continue to expand until Jesus returns to establish it in full. And this is where it gets a little bit complex for us because we can ask the question, so Jesus comes to establish his kingdom and he came and he is doing all these things. So does that mean the kingdom is here or is the kingdom something that comes in the future? And the answer to that question is yes. Yes, Jesus did establish, in a sense, his kingdom. It's beginning even now, but it's not yet been fully established. So it is here already 
We see this because on one occasion, a Pharisee asked Jesus when the kingdom of God would come, to which Jesus responded this in Luke 17. The kingdom of God does not come with your careful observation, nor will people say, here it is, or there it is, because the kingdom of God is within you. The kingdom of God is within you. What does that mean? Jesus is teaching us that there is a spiritual aspect to the kingdom of God. It's those who have faith in Christ, those who receive him as savior, who become part of his kingdom. And they experience those kingdom realities of blindness being taken away spiritually. Spiritual captivity, you know, they're being set free. Those who've been oppressed by sin and death and darkness who are, who are now at liberty. I mean, these are the things that Jesus does within us for all who trust in him. So in that sense, the kingdom is here already. But on the other hand, Jesus speaks of an, of an expected kingdom that is not yet fulfilled. It's not only spiritual. Some people will say that because Jesus came and proclaimed this good news that the kingdom is now in every sense. But that's not what Jesus teaches us. We find him at the institution of the Lord's Supper saying this in Luke 22. I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. Take this and divide it among you. For I tell you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. So Jesus says that it's coming. There's this future aspect to it. And then you get to the great commission passage at the end of Luke. He tells his disciples to go and proclaim the gospel, the good news, to all the nations of the earth, that this kingdom is to spread and expand because as the gospel is preached, more people believe. As more people believe, the kingdom of God within them, uh, it, it becomes a reality, and so the kingdom grows. So we're in that season right now of kingdom expansion. The kingdom of God is expanding and growing. The parables tell us it's like a mustard seed that starts small, and then it grows and becomes great. And that is what is happening right now through the preaching of the gospel. But there's a future aspect to it um, I won't steal all the thunder for this. Um, I forget who's teaching Acts. You are. Is that next week? Two. two weeks. Okay, so in two weeks, Michael will get to this. But in Acts chapter 1, uh, in verses uh, 6 through 8, um, the disciples ask Jesus. You know, he's resurrected from the grave at this point. He's glorified. They're with him on the mountain. And they say, Lord, are you going to establish your kingdom now? Is this the moment when you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? You can tell they're, they're amazed and he's raised from the dead and they are more convinced than ever he is the Messiah. And now he's just done this amazing thing and they're like, now's, now's the time, right? Everything's going to happen now. And they ask this question, at now at this point are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And Jesus says, it's not for you to know the time or the day. What I want you to worry about is preaching the gospel. He says, you'll be clothed with power. The Holy Spirit is going to empower you, and you're going to take this gospel, this good news, um, not just to Jerusalem, but also to Judea and Samaria and the uttermost parts of the earth. And that's what we see happening in Acts, as the gospel spreads and the kingdom grows. But Jesus effectively answered their question, are you going to restore the kingdom now? With a, not yet. First, you need to go and take the gospel to the world. The kingdom will come later. So our job is to get to work. So in the, in the Gospel of Luke, we see that the, king, the kingdom will continue to expand until Jesus returns to establish it in full. So there's this already not yet sense of the kingdom of God in the Gospel of Luke. And then fourth, we see that entrance to the kingdom 
and the fulfillment of the kingdom, both of these realities we've just talked about, they depend on Christ. They depend on Christ. There is no entrance to the kingdom apart from Christ. There is no fulfillment of the kingdom apart from Christ. And there's two stories that bring this out for us. In Luke chapter 23, you can turn there and look at this. We see this beautiful and amazing story that we only find in the Gospel of Luke. In verses 39 through 43. As Jesus hangs there on the cross, it says, One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom." And he said to him, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. We see a beautiful example here of repentance and faith. This man says, I'm being judged and killed and so are you, you know, thief number, number one. We deserve this because we're sinners. We are guilty. You see his confession of sin. And then you see his faith in Christ. Remember me when you enter into your kingdom. He believed that Jesus was the Messiah. He believed that Jesus had a kingdom and was establishing his kingdom. And he asked Jesus to do something for him that he could not do for himself. This is the textbook definition of faith. Jesus, I believe in who you say you are and I'm trusting in you to save me after just confessing his sin. It's this beautiful story. And Jesus says, today you will be with me in paradise. Jesus says, I will remember you and you will enter into my kingdom. Entrance into the kingdom depends on Christ. The whole Gospel of Luke, as as much as we want to emphasize all these different themes and theologies, what do they all have in common? Christ is at the center of all of them. It all points to Jesus. So entrance to the kingdom depends on Christ, but so also does the fulfillment of the kingdom. And this, again, is another unique story to Luke in chapter 24, starting in verse 13, that is unique to Luke and gives us just an amazing and exciting story. Verse 13, this is after Christ has raised from the dead. It says that very day, two of them, uh, two of the disciples here, were going home to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They've been at Jerusalem for Passover. Jesus has been crucified and buried, and they've all been together. Now they're going home. Imagine how deflating and confusing it was for them. And this was, They were going home, about seven-mile walk, and they were talking with each other about all the things that had happened, And while they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what is this conversation you are holding with each other as you walk? said, hey guys, what you talking about? He just kind of comes alongside them as, you know, there would have been people traveling. Because they stood still, it says in verse 17, looking sad. They're grieved. So he asked, what are you talking about? Verse 18, then one of them named Cleopas answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened in these days? Basically, where have you been? Have you been living under a rock? How do you not know about everything that's just gone on? And he said to them, what things? And they said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. They don't get it, do they? They still don't understand. Yes, and besides all this, 
It is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning. And when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said. But him they did not see. They were troubled by the death of Jesus and and crushed because they thought he was going to be the one to redeem Israel. Little did they know that's how he would redeem Israel was through his death. And they had heard the report about the empty grave, but they didn't know what to make of it. The women claimed to have seen angels, but they're not sure if they should believe them. They said some of the disciples, we'd trust their story, but they didn't actually see Jesus. So we don't know what to make of it. And then in verse 25, Jesus, obviously they don't realize it's him, said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Moses, remember, wrote the Pentateuch, so Genesis. Jesus goes all the way back to Genesis and then goes through the prophets. He interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. I would have loved to have taken that class, wouldn't you? To have Jesus himself go through the entire Old Testament and place his finger on every point where it points to him. Every prophecy that pointed to Christ, every symbol and image and theme that that finds its resolution in Jesus. To have Jesus himself unpack the scriptures and show you how it all points to him. And I don't think this means that literally every verse is about Jesus. But Jesus traced his finger through the story, through the prophets, through the law, everything, and, and talk to them about all the things found there that point to him. Verse 28, so they drew near to the village to which they were going. And he acted as if he was going further. But they urged him strongly, as you and I would if you had just had such an amazing conversation, saying, stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to them. We see echoes here of the Last Supper. And in that moment, verse 31, their eyes were opened and they recognized him. And I think there's a lot more there than just the fact that they realized it was Jesus. They finally got it. They recognized who he was. There's faith here. It says they recognized him. They saw Jesus for who he was. And he vanished from their sight. Then they said to each other, did our hearts not burn within us? while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures. It's an amazing story that shows that Jesus is the fulfillment of everything in the Old Testament, all the kingdom prophecies, prophecies, all the promises of redemption. It all finds its fulfillment in Christ. Entrance into the kingdom and the fulfillment of the kingdom and the gospel of the kingdom, it all depends on Christ. And as these disciples talk with Jesus, the scriptures are unpacked, their hearts burn within them. And then shortly after that, we find Jesus appears. The great commission is given to them. They're told to go to all the world and tell the whole world what they've just learned, that Jesus is the Christ, that he's the fulfillment of all these prophecies and of his kingdom and his gospel. And the book ends, if you look down in verse 52, this is after Christ has ascended back into heaven. It says, and they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God. The note, this book ends on a note of faith and worship and joy. And this is the takeaway that we should get from this book as well. When you really get it, like these two disciples on the road, when you see Jesus and you realize 
how central he is to all of this and how he brings salvation and his kingdom, then we respond with faith and with worship and with joy. When our eyes are open to Christ, to see him as he is, when it all makes sense and it all comes together, we see that he is the key, he's at the center, he's the one to whom it all points, then we know we must believe in him, we must proclaim him, and we can rejoice in him and worship him. That's the gospel of Luke. And I hope that you're excited and now better equipped to go read it for yourself. Thanks. You are dismissed.